Hello everyone in Podland, it's Amber here and I am once again on the Ile de la Cité just in the shadow of Notre Dame to investigate a new episode I thought it was just going to be a quick story uh, and, and it was but I did learn quite a lot of unexpected things ended up delving into some of the more medieval past of Paris so that was really interesting um, and that's the point of the podcast really for, for me to learn as much as to tell you Ooh, there's a dead rat here in the middle of the street disgusting um, alright then, I'll speak to you at the end. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to Panam, a podcast that rifles through Paris's dirty secrets and then tells you all about them. In this episode, I head off to the Ile de la Cité to discover more about a certain urban legend. Now, growing up in London, I was familiar with the story of Sweeney Todd, the bloody barber of Fleet Street, who would cut more than your hair before dispatching you off to his neighbour, Mrs Lovett, to turn you into a pie. You might have seen the musical version by Tim Burton, and if you haven't, I wouldn't recommend it. It was horrible. Anyway, imagine my surprise when, on moving to Paris, I discovered that they have claimed this story as their own. Sweeney Pierre, maybe? I decided to investigate and see who really, if anyone, owns this story and if I could find out if there was any truth in it. So let's go. Sweeney Todd is a Victorian invention, appearing first in A Penny Dreadful, which is a cheap book, costing about a penny, usually about sensational stories, focusing on the exploits of detectives, criminals or supernatural entities. In Fleet Street, that's in London town, when King Charlie wore the crown, there lived a man of great renown, t'was Sweeney Todd the barber. One shave from him and you'd want no more, you'd feel his razor sharp, then tumble wallop through the floor and wake up plain Sweeney Todd, or rather The Barber of Fleet Street, as it was called, was first published in 1846 and was possibly based on a character from Dickens, or at least inspired by elements from Dickens's Martin Chuzzlewit, which was published some time before. For example, the rather guileless character of Tom Pinch is convinced that London is a dangerous place and that country visitors are often lured into unfamiliar quarters where they are, quote, made meat pies of or some horrible thing. Later then, in chapter 19 of Martin Chuzzlewit, the character of Paul Sweedlepipe is introduced. He was a barber and it is noted that he is next door to the celebrated mutton pie shop. Sounds very familiar. Although maybe Dickens was just casting aspersions on the dubious quality of English meat pies. The French version is called L'Affaire de la Rue des Marmosettes by Paul Feval, and it appears a little later, in 1865. Case closed, I thought. The English version, whether it be Dickens or not, came first. But it's not that simple. Although the French story is very similar in some respects, the demon barber, the gruesome pie maker, Paul Favelle assures us that it is in fact based on a French legend. And to be fair, the story does differ slightly from Sweeney Todd. Let's see how. The French version is set in the late medieval period, in 1387, rather than Victorian times. The French story takes place on the Ile de la Cité in today's 4th arrondissement. 
Although both set in the heart of a city, the population between Victorian London and medieval Paris were very different, and so too were the consequences. Medieval Paris was nothing like modern-day Paris. The Ile de la Cité, sometimes called the Cradle of Paris due to the fact that it's been occupied since pre-Roman times, was radically different. This is mainly due to the work of Baron Haussmann, who remodelled Paris in the late 1800s. He reduced the 500-odd streets that once jostled for space here to the mere 24 that you see today. In front of Notre Dame particularly, there used to be lots of small, winding streets, chock-a-block with houses. It was a densely packed, somewhat insalubrious neighbourhood, and when Houseman cleared it, lots of people said he did a disservice to the cathedral, leaving it standing alone with nothing around it to give it a feeling of scale. Today, it's pretty useful that there's all this space for the some 14 million visitors that come annually. But if you do get a chance, check out some of the 3D simulations on YouTube of what Paris used to look like, or watch the beginning of Disney's Notre Dame de Paris to get the idea of what the city was like pre-Hausman. Morning in Paris, the city awakes to the bells of Notre Dame. The fishermen fishes, the bakerman bakes to the bells of Notre Dame. To the big bells as loud as the thunder, to the little bells soft as a psalm. And some say the soul of the city is the... Houseman had actually intended to clear the idyllicite of all houses. But his dismissal in 1870 spared the few that we still have left, with the oldest dating from around the 16th century. Now, many have criticised Haussmann for his aggressive remodelling of Paris. Take a look at what is still called the Latin Quarter on the other side of the river for a feel of pre-Haussmann Paris. Small, winding streets, narrow alleys and mismatched houses. I, personally, am in two minds. I do see some of the good and necessity of widening the streets and cleaning up the city, but he does seem to have gone about it without much regard for history. Now, the Idélicité stretches from the back of Notre-Dame over to about the Pont Neuf, the very tip being the square de Vergalon. But we are interested today in the area just north of Notre-Dame, so left of the cathedral as you look at it, and that is where our story takes place. Now, in medieval Paris, and for hundreds of years, this was a very particular area known as the Cloisters of Notre-Dame. In fact, the street running along the cathedral is still called Rue de la Cloître de Notre-Dame, reminding us of its history. A cloister is usually a completely enclosed area attached to a monastery where monks could pray and separate themselves from the rest of the world. This area was not exactly a cloister in that sense, but was rather an area surrounded by walls with four entrances. These doors would be closed at sunset and reopened in the morning and where within, the canons, who were high-ranking, respected members of the church, lived and worked. The main entrance would have been at what is now number 18, Rue de Cloide de Notre-Dame. Today, if you go there, you see a small little alley leading to a private residence. The cloisters stretched from the cathedral all the way to the Quai aux Fleurs, a relatively small area which contained only 37 houses for the canons to live, gardens, but also the highly reputable and respected and powerful Cathedral School, which predated the Sorbonne and where great minds like Abelard would teach the future popes, bishops and cardinals. 
The cloisters may have been the most significant and important religious area on the island, but the whole of the Ile de la Cité during the Middle Ages was dominated by the church. There were no fewer than 23 chapels on this island, although now all that remain are Notre-Dame, Saint-Chapelle, and the vestiges of Saint-Agnon, where it is thought that Abelard and Eloise got married. As you can imagine, the whole area was full of clergy, canons, scholars and church seminary students. But if Haussmann removed old Paris, it was the revolution that took care of the rest. The last vestiges of the cloisters were dismantled following the revolution and the rue de Cloître de Notre-Dame briefly renamed to the Cloître de la Raison, the Cloisters of Reason. To be fair, it was not Haussmann who removed all of the chapels. Saint-Jean-Laurent was the parish church of the cloister and was actually attached to the wall of Notre-Dame. It was dismantled in 1748 when the parishes were reorganised and the church as well as its small cemetery was closed. A rather unusual remnant, which I presume came from here, can be found hidden in a private residence on the Ile de la Cité. Some of the stones used to pave the courtyard are actually tombstones and if you look very closely you might spot the faded Gothic script. Now that I have set the scene, let us get back to our bloodthirsty story. Amongst all this theology, learning and religion, two enterprising store owners set up shop. One, as I'm sure you've worked out, was a barber. The other, a pastry maker. And just like in Sweeney Tobbs, the barber would take advantage of the itinerant population, here mainly students, to cut their throat rather than their hair before dispatching them next door through a secret hatch to be turned into pies and fed to the unsuspecting customers. There's a couple of things to mention, or at least bear in mind, about these professions. Barbers in the Middle Ages were often surgeons, which, terrifying as it sounds, meant that they actually did perform surgery, and they were known as barber surgeons. Needless to say, their death toll was high. I suppose the thought was that if they can cut hair, then why not limbs? Doctors thought surgery beneath them and concentrated on more academic sides of medicine, leaving the dirty work to these poorly trained individuals. It was also usual to have your teeth pulled or blood let at the barbers, so it was somewhat of a gruesome métier and I'm sure many feared going to get their hair cut. It might also explain why if you did go to the barber and saw blood on the floor, you wouldn't be too surprised. Bakers in medieval times were often itinerant, selling their wares on the move. Bread was an essential part of the medieval diet for Parisians, which was made up of three things. Bread, meat, which would have also included fish, and wine. To be honest, that still sounds like most modern Parisian diets to me. Anyway, being able to afford a shop, therefore, we can presume that our pastry shop owner was quite the entrepreneur and doing pretty well for himself. Everyone in the cloister enjoyed his delicious pastries, but his top seller, of course, was his meat pie. There was even rumour that the king himself was partial to one. Anyway, all was going well for the dastardly pair until, inevitably, they chose the wrong person to bake. A young German student, Alaric, came in to get a haircut, leaving his faithful dog outside to wait for him. His dog did just that, and when his master did not return after a few hours, he started barking and whining, and despite being shooed away by the furious barber, he refused to leave. The dog waited out the shop day and night, and the next day when Alaric's friends saw his dog, which they knew never left his side, their suspicions were aroused. 
His friends alerted the police, who would ultimately discover the grisly truth. The pair were condemned to death, hung from cages and burnt alive. Their building was destroyed and nothing was built in the space for over a hundred years. The ending is not that dissimilar to that of Sweeney Todd, in that they both come to a sticky end. However, the French story does not end there. Sweeney Todd's clients were just regular Londoners. But because of the unique nature of the area in which the French barber and baker were working, a new moral dilemma is introduced. How are these poor priests able to reconcile what they've done? Cannibalism, or the sin of anthropophagy, is punishable by excommunication. So to atone for this terrible sin, and also being horrified with what they've done, some of the priests decide to make a pilgrimage to Avignon and beg forgiveness from the Pope. They left barefoot from the Ile de la Cité and headed off to cleanse their immortal souls. However, they only made it to just outside the city walls to wear what is now Gobelin before giving up. Presumably, their feet hurt more than the fear of eternal damnation. They decided to abandon their arduous journey and to instead become mendicants, in other words, to make a living from begging. This was going fine until later that year Jean de Moulin, the new Bishop of Paris, came to visit his property on the hills of Mouftar. During his visit he was attacked by thieves and would have been killed if it had not been for the aid of these beggar priests who leapt to his aid. As a sign of his appreciation, Jean de Moulin gave the priests absolution and allowed them to open markets on his property. So are these very dubious origins of what is now the lovely market on Rue Mouffetard, one of Paris's oldest streets and oldest markets? There is even a tale that says that at the Church of Saint-Médard, which is at the bottom of the Rue Mouffetard, you can be absolved of the sin of cannibalism, stemming probably from this very story. It is, however, not true. Although there are plenty of strange going-ons that did happen at Saint-Médard, and if you've not already done so, go back and listen to episode 10 to find out more. But is this story true? Did it really happen? I have not found any evidence to corroborate this story. However, that people found barbers scary is understandable, and not such a giant leap to imagine they might kill you. I mean, they certainly did kill some people, didn't they? It's also understandable that people might have doubt as to the origins of the meat in the pies, hygiene standards being what they were, both in medieval Paris and Victorian London. It doesn't seem much of a stretch then to put the two of them together, and not really a surprise that we find this story both in Paris and in London. Maybe you know a similar story that happened in your town. If so, do tell me about it. Anyway, true or not true, it is a good story, and even though I'm from London, I think I like the French version just a little bit better, especially since it's the dog which reveals the crime, and of course the priests heading off for absolution. Now underneath the shop it's true, where the bodies tumble through, there lived a little widow who loved Sweeney Todd the barber. She made a living by selling pies. Her meat pies were a treat. Chock full of meat and such a size. Cause she was getting the meat from Mr. Sweeney Todd the Barber. 
So what's left today? Well, if you do want to find out more, then you're going to need to head over to the Ile de la Cité for a little walk around. Rue de Marmoset was actually destroyed in the reorganisation of the island, but the spot where the supposed baker and uh, barber were is still there. That can be found at 12 Rue Chanoines. Although, of course, that's not the original buildings, them being burnt down allegedly. And indeed, there are no medieval structures left on the Ile de la Cité apart from Notre-Dame, Saint-Chapelle and the Conciergerie. Although you might get a feel of what it was like all those years ago as you wander around the quiet streets, especially some of the more narrow streets like Rue des Chantres, you have to kind of use your imagination, probably make it a bit more filthy and you, you might get the idea of how dark and narrow the place was. Otherwise, if you're interested in this period, you should probably head over to the Cluny Museum, which is chock-a-block with all things medieval, or you could even visit the Museum of the History of Medicine to see some of the terrifying implement those surgeons or even barbers were using. And of course, you can wander down Rue Mouftar. It should only take you about 20 minutes to get there from the Ile de la Cité, although I would advise against going barefoot. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Um, gosh, it's really cold and snowy and windy. Um, I really enjoyed learning about that. And, um, yeah, so I was really pleased to have covered that story. In the beginning, I thought, nah, it's just going to be boring. Just Sweeney Todd version Francaise. But it was more than that. There was lots of exciting things. And I found myself really delving into the architecture and history of the Cloître de Notre-Dame. And it was kind of confusing, to be honest. Um, what with all the changes and moves and buildings being knocked down and, and, and built back up again. Um, but I was really pleased that we investigated that today. So anyway, if you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend. That would be amazing. Leave me a review. I love getting them. Send me a mail or, you know, uh, follow me on Instagram. I try and put up pictures of the things that I'm talking about each week and a little bit of information about them. So you can find that at Pan Am Podcast. Um, and otherwise, I hope you have a lovely day. Take care. Bye.